Welcome to The Law in Black and White, a podcast featuring Jonathan Greenblatt and myself, Brian Parker, the co-founders of Legal Innovators, an alternative legal service provider. We have been friends for over 25 years. We're both lawyers with lots of opinions. In this podcast, we look at current events, the business of law, innovation, and diversity in the legal industry. And occasionally, we'll even talk about sports. As the name of our show suggests, we recognize that there may be aspects of the law that require our thinking to go beyond just the black and white of the law. We share what we know, what we've learned, and what we're still learning. In today's episode, we're going to explore the law as it applies to the recent and very emotional and difficult issues concerning the shootings of unarmed black Americans during the course of the summer and before that over the course of the last several years. We're very pleased to have as our guest Matthew Brief, a former prosecutor, who's going to give us an objective view of the law and how it's applied. So, John, tell us about yourself. Well, thanks, Brian. Uh, as you well know, but people listening may not, my name is John Greenblatt. Uh, I am a lawyer, was a litigation and international arbitration partner at Sherman and Sterling for um, uh, 30 years and at the firm for 40. And you and I, Brian and I, co-founded Legal Innovators uh, earlier this year. And Legal Innovators is a, a alternative legal service provider that is attempting to both um, find additional pathways into the law for minority laws, graduating minority law students, young lawyers, and also rationalize the price point for all young lawyers, irrespective of background and race, uh, to see if we can actually start to attack some of the problems that I think big law structurally has uh, suffered through. Right. And I am Brian Parker, the other half of uh, Greenblatt and Parker. And pleasure to be here and be doing this with uh, with my co-founder, uh, as you just heard, Legal Innovators and what we do. Uh, so my background is as a uh, M&A attorney, uh, only for a bit, uh, and then did investment banking for about a decade and have been on the operational side uh, also for a decade. But I guess as people say, uh, once an attorney, always an attorney. And uh, what a time uh, to be alive here uh, in America. I am uh, I'm excited to do this. Um, as we segue, uh, John, I mean, what is what is the law in black and white? What we hope to do with this podcast is try to raise and discuss in a very civil, open and honest way some of the difficult social uh, and racial issues and particularly focusing on the intersection of those issues with the law. We're going to focus on the way the law approaches these issues, whether there are changes that maybe or at least should be discussed to be made, and if so, what those changes might be. And from time to time, we will also have guests, as we're honored to have tonight, um, that will address some of these subjects with us. And Brian, let me ask you this. Why do you think we're here and what do we hope to accomplish with this podcast series? Yeah, I, I think we're here to, to, to look at the law uh, on its face, as, uh, as black and white uh, would suggest. Um, but 
uh, as we know, uh, and understanding where the law is taking us. It often goes beyond the four corners of the page or the decision. And so how do we unpack for our audience what is going on? Tonight's conversation will be a perfect example. Uh, we want to have a respectful dialogue, um, tough topics, tough conversations. Uh, I think you'll see John and I uh, as as you know, sort of citizens of 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 this nation uh, have some of these personal issues. But whether we're taking you know your feedback or we're we're talking about it ourselves, uh, we're going to disagree. Uh, but I, I think we're going to aim um, using the law as a tool to take some of the passion that's in our current public discourse out and with our perspective and our experience uh, to provide you uh, a different lens to consider. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's the only lens or, or even the right one, but uh, we wanna elevate this, uh, we wanna elevate this dialogue. And so as we, as we transition into uh, the, the tonight's subject, um, I think as a, as a uh, black man, first and, and foremost, before a lawyer or CEO or, or, or any of that, um, we reflect on James Blake uh, and this uh, shooting, I guess, which is now almost uh, two weeks old in Kenosha, Wisconsin, um, or at least the news cycle on it. And one is struck, or at least I'm struck by the, by the nagging feeling of, here we go again, uh, wake up and I see the news coverage, or we all see the news coverage. And we see a black man shot in the back seven times. There's outrage, there are protests. Um, there, there are um, people protesting against the protesters. So we have passion on both sides. Um, the question that persists is, is, is the law cut and dry here, right? Is, is this is, is outrageous uh, as, as it seems? Um, we have a guest, as John mentioned, and he's gonna introduce him in a second, uh, Matt Brief. Uh, that will help us unpack the law, uh, look at the look at some of the facts, and then, uh, with that lens having been established, put it against the some of the other litany of uh, of shootings that have gone on recently. And then finally, uh, John and I will try to um, talk about some solutions, maybe from a public uh, policy perspective. Um, I'm going to turn it back to John to introduce our guest tonight. Thanks, Brian. So we are very pleased to have with us an old, old friend of mine going all the way back to law school and uh, someone I really respect uh, named Matthew Brief. I'll call him Matt. And Matt focuses on white collar criminal litigation and commercial civil litigation. Uh, prior to co-founding his current firm, Brief, Kesselman, Knapp and Shulman uh, in 1991, he was a senior litigation associate at a law firm in New York called Rosamond and Colon. He previously served as a prosecutor in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, which may be perhaps the most relevant experience to what we're going to discuss. But he also has U.S. federal prosecution experience as a United States Department of Justice organized crime, crime strike force member and also an associate at Sherman and Sterling, where I was for so long. Uh, he graduated with, from Union College in 1977 and from George Washington University Law School with honors, although I must say, Matt, I don't remember that part of it, uh, but it's on your CV, so uh, I'll take it as true, in 1980. Um, and since 1999, um, uh, Mr. Brief has twice been appointed by the New York State Athletic Commission as a monitor to oversee the business activities of prominent boxing promoters. 
Uh, he's appeared on numerous occasions and as an expert commentator on the courtroom television network. He's lectured at various metropolitan area law and graduate schools on criminal law and trial advocacy. And he's repeatedly been recognized in the field of criminal defense in super New York super lawyers and New York Metro editions of the super lawyers. And he's, uh, he, you know, we're going to ask Matt to focus on some of the legal issues the, the you know, what does the law say about the use of force and qualified immunity in these areas? And Matt, oh, we just want to welcome you and thank you for being willing to join us because I think it'll be very educational to get your views. No, thanks for asking me. This is this will be interesting. Um, so uh, let me just ask you if you can make sense of what the law says for those of us who aren't steeped in it. What is the law um, yeah. on the use of deadly force by a police officer? And later we can talk about the qualified immunity as well. But um, what's the current state of the law? I'll walk you through kind of the four steps that I think apply to a lot of the issues that are being that have arisen in the, in, in the past several months. And, you know, and the first is, you know, when can you use deadly force? And the Supreme Court, uh, in a case called Tennessee Garner, which dates back to the 1980s, you know, said, and, and on the surface, it certainly appears to make sense, that uh, deadly force can be used by a police officer when he has probable cause to believe that a suspect um, may, may pose a significant threat to the death to cause the death of a serious physical injury to others. I should point out in, in the Garner case, because that seems pretty gut and dry, uh, in the Garner case though, what the police officers did was shoot a fleeing burglary suspect who they actually kind of felt wasn't armed. And so it, it'll tell you how these doctrines can be stretched and used. Now he had just committed a burglary and, and, and who's to say that burglary doesn't pose a threat. If you're in a house which is getting burglarized, I suspect the victim thinks he's in significant risk of, of, of threat. That case has been refined a little bit by a case called Graham v. Connor, uh, in which the facts are in some respects even more extreme, although fortunately there wasn't a fatality, but which is one where the police, you know, arguably certainly roughhoused and became aggressive with with a fellow who actually was just going into diabetic shock and and had a friend there to tell the police just give him some orange juice he's going into diabetic shock he's not being uh, obstreperous he's not being violent uh and, and and there there was an old test which i i won't get into but but the supreme court said that you know we have to look at what what is objectively reasonable and when we do that and this makes sense. When we do that, we really have to look at it through the eyes of the cops on the street in the heat of the moment, because we as lawyers, and, and this is something that I always fault lawyers for, um, you know, years later, we debate whether a police officer's actions are reasonable and smart people on all sides of the political spectrum uh, or who analyze these facts disagree. Well, the cop, you know, has 10 seconds to make the decision that smart guys who graduated law school with honors, you know, sit in debate. Um, and, and so that kind of became the, the, the case of what's objectively reasonable for a cop to use deadly force, deadly physical force. Of course, and, and maybe we can talk about this later, 
the notion of putting the words objectively reasonable, you know, reasonable is not a scientific term. And as a trial lawyer, I can put 12 people into a jury box who will look at someone's actions, a police officer, anybody's actions, and say it's reasonable, and 12 different people in another box, and they'll say it's not reasonable because, truth be told, reasonable is a subjective term. Um, but that's that, that's where we are stuck with right now. And I don't say stuck with, I mean, I think it's courts wrestling with, with a very, very difficult uh, situation. Um, can I, can to, I just ask you sure. something there, Matt? Um, so I, you know, what I read from uh, the Connor case is that the court felt that the Garner standard um, was what they call a generalized excessive force standard, which, by the way, had some elements of it that were very difficult for a plaintiff to make. Um, this whole question of whether a, a police officer may have used sadistic and excessive force intentionally. And what they said, as I understand it, is that because it's a fourth, 14th Amendment clay case, which has a reasonableness standard in it, whether it's a reasonable seizure, these claims arise under the 14th Amendment, you must peg the claim to the language of, of the Constitution, which is reasonableness. And reasonableness, by definition, gives rise to an objective standard um, that's decided not with 2020 hindsight, but from the perspective of the actors at the time they committed the act, um, which is the standard objective reasonableness standard applied that we're familiar with. Um, so what remains actually of Garner, if anything, after uh, Connor? Well, you know, I think it's still in force because if you take the language of Garner, you know, if 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 a jury feels that somebody is fleeing who poses a significant threat, serious physical injury to others, to the police, they're going to find that objectively reasonable. You know, and I, I just think Graham broadened it out and, and tried to bring, you know, frankly, a more generalized test. And it's a worthy effort. I, I don't, I, I just, you know, the, the the use of the term objectively reasonable is is just a difficult one. But if you take, I'm not necessarily saying the facts of Garner, which I actually find a little difficult in, in supporting the holding. Um, but if you take that general circumstance of the police can use deadly force when someone poses, uh, you know, a threat of death or serious physical injury to the cops or others, most people will find that objectively reasonable. And now you know, we have this objectively reasonable standard under Graham, and, and then we can get into qualified immunity and, and then even no-knock warrants if you want. Right. Well, should we just quickly go into qualified immunity just to set the stage? And then I know Brian wants yeah. to talk about some of the facts and the way the precedent yeah. plays out. Yeah. Well, I mean, qualified immunity, you know, so everybody knows, gives police officers immunity from civil suit as to certain statutes. People should understand prosecutors and judges, uh, in many cases, uh, well, judges have absolute immunity. What qualified immunity means is that it's qualified. You, you don't automatically get it. Um, and, and the way the courts have, again, tried to define qualified immunity, and again, problems have arisen from it, is that the police officer loses that immunity when he realizes he's violating a clearly established right which of course puts the police officer in the position of being his own constitutional lawyer 
And courts have recognized this because, frankly, they don't find qualified immunity. They don't find the immunity to be qualified very often, uh, which, which again, raises an issue. But, you know, creative lawyers have, in many respects, found a way around that because, of course, they can sue jurisdictions and police departments, you know, without necessarily suing the individual police officer, you know, who, frankly, isn't going to have the kind of deep pocket that a lot of lawyers want to sue anyway. But it is a problem. It's, it's giving police officers significant protection because it's a tough standard to say, well, you know, you clearly knew that, that there was a Fourth Amendment right here that you were violating. It's kind of this super standard of blatant violation. So that's kind of, and there's a whole host of decisions that 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 deal with that. <clears throat> and it's controversial. There certainly are some judges, Judge, Justice Sotomayor, who wants to limit the doctrine. Um, and it's 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 a law and doctrine that obviously, you know, may be significantly impacted. Uh, I don't want to get into the election, but depending on this election, we may find particularly, I think, of all these things that we're discussing, the law and qualified immunity uh, evolve. So let me um, let me just make sure that for our listeners benefit that we can explain how this plays out. What what I understood from the cases I looked at is that where a a police officer really cannot say that the act that he's trying to prevent uh, was clearly uh, in compliance with the law. He'll get the benefit, he or she will get the benefit of the doubt. In other words, if we're walking down the street minding our own business, everyone knows that itself is not criminal. So you don't get qualified immunity for taking action on that if there's no other circumstances besides that. But as soon as you get into an area where the constitutional standards are less than 100% clear, which is virtually all difficult criminal issues, it seems to me, the qualified immunity may kick in. And we've seen that before where they would say, the, the, the courts have said, the police officer would have to know that this is so clearly prohibited by the constitution that it's unlawful for him or her to try to stop it. Is that a that's, fair statement? That's right. That's right. I mean, basically what the courts are saying, it has to be particularly egregious for, for us to step in and 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 allow a, a police officer's immunity to, to fade away. Um, but but I don't want to I, I mean, I will share one one anecdote from from years of being on the New York City Judiciary Committee and we would get judicial appointments passed toward us. Um, so people don't, you know, misestimate or underestimate the magnitude of the issue. I was once stunned when a judge from the Bronx who was coming before the committee for approval told us that there were more false arrest cases in the Bronx than traditional slip and falls, which I guess, John, when we were in law school, you know, that was kind of the traditional cliched, the courts are, are, are bollocked up with these kinds of cases. Actually, in the Bronx, you've got more false arrest cases, but they're not aimed at the police. Like I said, they're aimed at the city, they're aimed at the police department. And, and so there are kind of ways around that. But because I think now with the advent of body cameras and, and frankly, social media, you know, the focus really is becoming, and, and I think in some respects properly, because it's not necessarily the city or the department, but individual police officers, and it, it, it let's be said, we're talking about a, a small number, but they are the problem. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so we'll see. 
I'm going to come back later after Brian uh, goes through some of the some of the factual circumstances that we that are so difficult um, and that we're all wrestling with now um, to ask you later whether Graham is still in you know today's world the right approach to the law and if not whether the standard what should the standard be but let's hold that and and Brian I know you wanted to talk about some of the issues with Matt yeah and, and, I mean look I think that that's where um to the extent that 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 we have a divide on this question, uh, there are, um, and I guess just as a prelude, Matt, uh, when you go through your um, qualified immunity and John clarifies uh, what's going on from a legal perspective, it, you know, it's a very law and order message, right? Um, there is a emotional side of this. There's a fact based side of this as well. So. How do I how do I say look in a in a you know society where we want to have environments where police can do their jobs, but on the other side, um, we want to have uh, communities uh, respect law enforcement and buy into an overall structure. So I guess I want to take the other side. Uh, the other uh, I want to I want to go through the facts as John was saying a little bit, but I guess my first and, and high level is what is the law and what do you say to the person who wakes up, uh, who's marching, who is still flabbergasted by uh, a person was shot seven times in the back and there hasn't been an arrest? Uh, I, I'm wondering how the how the case law uh, can can guide us here, and is is there a way to read this where an arrest would be proper, or 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 as you see it, or is the is is the police officer here um, insulated? No, well, well, the police officer shouldn't be insulated when he does something that society has found is is violative of the law. I, I think the problem that that I have with with kind of what's happening now is twofold. The, the first is that because now of the immediacy of social media, uh, body cameras, television, um, the internet, uh, is that people aren't waiting for the facts. Um, truth be told, I've read, as everybody has, a lot about the Jacob Blake shooting and the Breonna Taylor shooting. Right. Uh, and, 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 you know, now, particularly in New York, we're, we're seeing a lot about Daniel Prude in mm -hmm. Rochester. But I, I can't say what the facts are. And, you know, maybe I'm more sensitive to it because this is what I do every day. But but, you know, so my, my first response is I, I think it's sad, but understandable that people are reacting emotionally. What I, I'm sadder about is that the media and frankly our politicians and i'm not picking sides here are all too quickly jumping into the fray mm -hmm. and and i know each side says it for political advantage and some people are saying it because it's heartfelt and but, but we're just not waiting and and i know that's hard i i you know and and i, I don't even know if, if so much if it's law driven as mm -hmm. opposed to it being fact driven i mean i can come up with scenarios for for instance the jacob blake shooting where i think officer shesky ought to be charged with murder and i can come up with fact patterns which you know may say that his actions were objectively reasonable and, and i can do 
you know, and I, I think I can make those arguments in almost every one of the recent cases, with with two exceptions, Daniel Prude and 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 George Floyd, because they were mm-hmm. restrained, and I think that's right. a, a completely different uh, set of facts. But on a lot of these other cases, e- even including Breonna Taylor, which is a terrible tragedy, I don't think people are are waiting for the facts or absorbing the facts. And then I think, unfortunately, just the way our society, if, if we can make some general statement, I don't know if people would care about the facts anyway. You know, they, they if we could all agree upon a set of facts. Yeah. The, if I could just cut in, I guess that's my, my, my point in having faith in the system. And I know we're going to come back to some st- uh, statistics around rates that African-Americans are being shot by the police versus whites and all of the cases. And I just want to put a pin in this uh, that, that we're talking about with the exception of this one. So let's go through uh, as an example for the listeners uh, as to how the facts may, may help us here. But um, the other litany, starting with Walter Scott in South Carolina, uh, every one of those people that is now dead um, were not armed. And, and, and I think that that, uh, again, from a rule of law perspective, where we need people to be buying into uh, that law is carried out in a sane and an equitable way, is, um, is tough. Uh, so let's start with Kanisha. And, and I wonder, um, you know, you, let, let's just say you're putting your defense attorney hat on here for a second. And we go back to 2004, where we had a similar incident. There, the, the defendant was a, uh, was a white man that was killed in front of his family. Um, so I wonder, you as a, a defense person, you know, what, what role are you um, ascribing to the history here? And as we jump into the facts, um, let's help the, the audience understand um, what was going on here. Um, there, was, uh, the, there was a warrant out for, for uh, Mr. Blake. So how should that play in? Right. Well, well here's the way I think defense lawyers for the officer, uh, and really there's two officers involved, and we can talk about other officers who were there. Because that's a whole separate, I think, much more difficult issue in many respects. And, but, and but, Matt, but, sorry, sorry to uh, break in again. I misspoke. Of course, you're right. Uh, I meant uh, if you could put your prosecutor's hat on. Yeah, well, I'll do it either way. The hat of the side of the of the of the victim representing the victim's no, right. family as well. Well, that's the yeah. the state, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if I'm prosecuting the Blake case, uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm saying, okay, the police are called to what appears to be a dispute. But here's where you almost have to assume a fact pattern, you know, was, yes, they're aware that Jacob Blake has an open warrant for felony sexual assault arising out of a domestic incident. That appears to be kind of universally agreed upon. Um, My response to that is, so what? I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if the police are not acting in a reasonable way, uh, then it doesn't matter if the person's a bad person, a good person, wanted or not wanted. It, it's just an irrelevant fact. I will flip it around and say, if I'm the defense lawyer for the police, I'm saying no, because that already lets the police know that they're dealing with an individual who's violent. Right. Um, but, 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 but then you have some sort of scuffle breaks out. Um, they apparently, the officers in question apparently tried to tase Jacob Blake. It didn't take. And that's because tasers, for some reason, sometimes it's the taser itself, 
Some people's bodily constitutions just react very differently. But mm -hmm. he's now walking away. If I'm prosecuting, okay, he's walking away from you. He's going to his car. What was to stop these two officers from simply backing off and saying, okay, you have a fellow who's resisted arrest. He's getting into a car. It's easy enough for us to get the license plate number. We can call for backup. We can pick him up wherever. This doesn't have to escalate. Right. You know, the flip side of it is, you know, there's a violent struggle. He doesn't respond to tasering. He's getting into a car. An officer says, I assume is going to say, he sees him grabbing a knife because at some point it's been reported. Somebody says, drop the knife. And are you really going to let this guy go away? Because he's got three kids in the car. So right. is he is but, he is he is, but, is he in his Matt let 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 us put a pin in because I think we're I think we're we're moving a little rapidly um it, for you know for the audience because uh, we're you know we're going from one fact to the other and and I guess um when you got there you as you said he has an outstanding warrant um there's also a school of thought that says he was trying to play peacemaker to a disturbance um should what what is uh, the role of the officer in our analysis here and trying to get an accurate assessment of the facts before um, escalating. Uh, and then two, um, and I think you were going down this road, uh, in as under the law, what role does the fact that he is ignoring uh, an officer's command, right? He's walking away and he's going to his car. So how do, we, how do we think about well, those two things? I mean, this all plays into that objectively reasonable standard. And, and we don't know what happened when the cops arrived. Was Jacob Blake trying to defuse some sort of dispute? Uh, in which case, that's certainly something a prosecutor's going to use. Or was he at a place in which he was the subject of a restraining order and was there in violation of that restraining order? So it, it all plays into, until we know all the facts, really, how can we apply the law? And, and the answer is we, we can't. I mean, th these are gonna be difficult investigations. Um, so that, that's my response as we take it each step of the way. So I, I don't know if the police urged everybody to calm down or, or said, what is happening here? Or if, if in fact, Mr. Blake was violating a restraining order, was, was a woman who perhaps was the one who called the police saying, mm -hmm. you know, there's already a warrant out for him. We just don't know. And until we know that, I don't know how we judge whether these officers' actions were reasonable under anybody's standard, under the Graham standard, uh, or, or under any any reasonableness standard. So Matt, you're you're asking people to be patient, you know, with with facts. Um, and I think we're, you know, we're gonna come back and talk about some statistics from from these other uh cases, uh, what seems like a string of cases, and and ask, is is it reasonable uh to say, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, when there's been, you know, so much pain and it seems like whether it's profiling or it's weighted one uh, heavily towards one community, um, how, how do we sit back? But let's go to the evidence and talk about uh, body cam uh, videos and, and, and what I've seen here, uh, and I'd love it if, if you have something that disagrees, is there are holes in the, in the body cam footage. Um, so what happened in Kenosha in 2004 
was one of the things that spurred on the use of body cams. Now we have it spotty. We have other other cases where police are either um, not turning it on at all or it's intermittent. I'm wondering how that fact should be uh, analyzed as we seek to apply the law. Well, it's a crucially important fact. I mean, if you take the Blake case, uh, and, and then we can, I'll briefly just talk about a couple of other cases. Mm-hmm. But if the police officers are turning off body cameras at critical moments, one, I mean, you guys know your lawyers, judges are going right. to essentially say that that's equivalent to a spoilation of evidence. And they may even instruct the jury to draw a negative inference out of that. Um, if it is just technological flaws, because the other thing that, that people have to understand, whether it's, it's, it's accumulating and testing DNA to tasers, to body cameras, is all these technologies are not perfect yet. And, and so, you know, you literally can have flaws in software, equipment, and, and I don't know. I mean, I'd be, you know, pretty horrified as a juror if I find that, oh, we're at the, the moment of a confrontation, all of a sudden the body camera is turned off and the next thing, you know, a young black man or, or anyone is dead. I mean, you know, and, and, and we're left with, with just that. So I think mm-hmm. it's a critical fact to find out what happened. I think what's happening now, though, is, and this is, again, there, there are so many new statutes to be discussed. Some jurisdictions like New York have passed very, very onerous discovery statutes that are imposing incredibly heavy burdens on the police. And it arises because of cases like Laquan McDonald in Chicago, yeah. where, you know, for several months, people were under the apprehension, apprehension that a, a black teenager with a knife was shot by police until they, the body camera video came out. And it turned out, you know, he was surrounded by a phalanx of policemen, wasn't anywhere near them. He did have a knife, but it certainly, I think most people will agree, and the officer was convicted ultimately, wasn't necessary to shoot him. Um, in, in Daniel Prude, which is this new case in Rochester, which is particularly uh, creating attention in New York, it was right. months until people realized that, you know, there was this sadly mentally ill guy uh, naked on the street, restrained and in what we call a mesh or a spitoid, and the police were compressing his diaphragm. But I must Mm -hmm. say, New York passed a statute that put obligations on the police and the DA's offices to turn over discovery within 15 days. Well, given the volume of crime, that was absolutely impossible. I mean, you just can't keep up with that standard. And and they've already loosened it. I I forget the exact amount, but it's still going to be very tough. And I've spoken to prosecutors who I regard as excellent prosecutors who are saying, you know, it's just too hard given the bureaucracy and the load and the costs. But but I know I went a little bit far afield, but the answer is body cameras are incredibly important. And if, if police are willfully manipulating them, they are certainly running the risk, it seems to me, if I'm a prosecutor, of giving me a potent piece of evidence, and they are certainly going to alienate many jurors. Yeah. Uh, Thank you for that, Matt. I think that that's uh, very uh, illustrative uh, and I think really helps. Um, So so I think what we're what you're saying uh, is patience and, you know, let's let's hope the technology improves and sometimes it will bear out you know, one way or the other. Um, uh, let's come back to this, uh, to the stats, but last, last question for me for, for this segment, um, you've laid out, um, a series of precedents. You've laid out 
facts, uh, or I'm sorry, being patient and looking to, to the facts. John has summarized those precedents. Um, we see Kyle uh, Rittenhouse as uh, the aftermath of the marches, 18-year-old um, uh, white kid from neighboring Illinois uh, that came over there for the purpose of, I guess, ostensibly facing off uh, with some of the Black Lives Matter uh, protesters. Um, not only did he walk up to police with a full uh, gun uh, in, in plain sight, uh, he was offered water. Um, he then shot two people. Um, I'm sorry, he shot three. Well, two shot of them died. Right. Yeah. Right. So two of two of them died. Um, are do we have, you know, are there different standards of justice going on here? Well, I don't know if it's a different standard of justice, but let's let's take this. And I've only seen portions of the Kyle Rittenhouse video, but he shoots and and he's on the ground. He shoots. And then he stands up and walks again toward a battalion of cops, you know, with his hands raised, but he's still got his rifle slung across his shoulder. You know, now remember what we're talking about in all these cases really is, is a small, I'd like to think, a very small segment of cops. It takes just one. And, and you know, the question is, and I don't have an answer for it, but I don't think it lies in the system of justice. I think it lies in the system of our hearts. If there was one cop there, would he have fired if Kyle Rittenhouse was a 17-year-old black man? And I can't give an objective answer to that question. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if the answer is yes, and it wouldn't surprise me if the answer is no, because you know it, it, we can try to screen and train cops better, and that's certainly a societal imperative. Um, but who knows the answer to that? I, you know. I don't have an answer to that. Uh, but again, were he black and one cop or two cops out of, you know, would appear to be a battalion if fired? I don't think that would surprise me either. Right. Well, I mean, that's just the, the case that we had in Minnesota uh, when, you know, three or four officers stood around obscuring uh, the, the, the view of the one officer with, uh, with his knee on George Floyd's uh, neck. Right. So uh, let, let's, um, I know that John was going to jump back in. Well, uh, Matt, I, I want to discuss uh, ultimately the law and whether this objective standard works properly in today's uh, uh, environment. And, and I don't think it should change with the environment. I mean, the question is, is it really being, is it fair under the circumstances? Uh, and we're both lawyers. All three of us are lawyers, actually, on this call. We are trained to be objective. We're trained to, to strain out the emotion. And when I read cases like Graham uh, and other cases, they're, they're, um, you know, Supreme Court cases are particularly uh, cut and dried. You know, they, they apply the legal standard. They say we're going to be applying a summary judgment standard or we're applying the motion to dismiss standard. We're giving the benefit of the doubt to the plaintiff. Um, which is usually the claimant, the, the, the party who's complaining about the excessive force. They state the facts in a very anodyne, almost unemotional, well, clearly unemotional way. And you read the case and you go, ah, you know, I, as a lawyer, I could read it and say, I see that. That seems like a, an objectively, an objective attempt to get at it. But then you have the litany of cases that Brian has only touched upon, but which we are unfortunately all aware of, 
that has led uh, black Americans to feel that the system is not working correctly, that these things, when you add them up and you look at them in totality, there are simply too many incidents of unarmed black men and sometimes women being killed by the police and that there isn't the degree of accountability that one might expect. And um, so I say to you, Matt, um, can you really separate, if we want to have everyone buying into the legal system, if we want people to feel that it's fair, how unemotional, objective, and patient can we really be when you have a pattern of conduct like this? Uh, that is so well said, John. Thank you. Yeah, except, you know, I, I don't know when you use the term pattern of conduct, you know, how necessarily accurate that is. Because, you know, like I said, each case needs to be taken on its own merits. And I certainly wish that politicians behaved better at this time, um, and particularly this time, because these cases are different. And, and, and it is hard because if people are frustrated or people are angry, uh, you know, they, they, it's understandable that they won't want away from the facts. But the fact is, in my way, they should. And, and, and so, you know, the pat, I mean, let, let's, as Brian said, let's get into the statistics a little bit. The best database that I know of is the Washington Posts, um, because it's very comprehensive. Uh, the methodology is a little bit, uh, I, I think, soft because they, they try to compile all the deaths by police and they include social media and tips, which, you know, I think, makes it a little bit less than reliable, but unfortunately we really don't have, and it's something we should have, a, a, a good federal database in which police departments are required to report shootings, um, which would be helpful in this discussion. But leaving aside, there are some people we just don't know the race of, at least last year, what we're talking about in terms of unarmed people, and then we can get into that, are 14 black people you know, over the course of the year, and actually 25 white people. Um, and then there's obviously a certain amount of Latino, and I don't mean to downplay their role in society by any means. Um, and, and we have a pretty constant number in the past five years of police killings of about a thousand people um, being killed each year by the police. And that number varies from, I think, about 960 to a little over a thousand. You know, if you look at the unarmed, I mean, that on its face is bad. But let me go to a couple of situations. You know, is Jacob Blake going to be considered the killing of an unarmed person? Well, what if the police saw him reaching for a knife that was in the car? I mean, is that unarmed? And then you get situations where, and I'll try to take both sides of, of the discussion now, um, the Michael Brown case, which is really one of the seminal cases in the formation of the Black Lives Matter movement. And if people remember, there were terrible riots in Ferguson. You know, Michael Brown was technically unarmed, but, you know, the Justice Department did an exhaustive investigation. And remember, this was the Justice Department. That I'm not sure whether Eric Holder or Loretta Lynch was the attorney general, but it was the Obama administration. It's not the Trump administration. They found that Michael Brown was, in fact, going for Officer Darren Wilson's gun. And, and the Justice Department didn't press charges in that case. 
Um, and yet it's packed, certainly an emotional wallop for people who are, again, understandably influenced because the, the Floyd killing is, is almost so horrendous on its face. And uh, I keep alluding to this thing of prudence in it, but that too, it, it's just tough to justify those facts. So, you know, when you say the pattern, it, it, it's true. I mean, I, look, I think there's media heat on, frankly, every killing, not every killing, but, but killings of black people that on their surface certainly appear to be troublesome. And that's, you know, certainly boiled over since George Floyd. But I don't think we should kid ourselves. I, I will assume, and I confess I don't know of any, that white people have been killed by the police and Latinos have been killed by the police this year, and certainly the killing of George Floyd. And remember, some of these cases, Breonna Taylor's case precedes George Floyd. And 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 let me talk about Breonna Taylor's case for a second, because you know that that to me is almost the worst tragedy of all. Because that's where I think we can talk about how to make things better. And, and, you know, and if, if I could interject just super quick and maybe you could fold this in while you're, while you're going, cause this is a, this is a factual, um, I guess, uh, determination. So, so the justice department didn't pursue Mike Brown, but that wasn't the same as saying there was no wrongdoing, um, because there was certainly a reading of that saying he was trying to protect himself, uh, from being shot. I guess that's number one. Um, number two, um, I wonder how you think about the litany and, and including Brianna Taylor. Um, when, when we look at this, the stats in the, in the Washington Post database that you talk about, it's coming out that, uh, blacks are three times more likely to be shot unarmed, uh, by the police. Those statistics even up a little bit, uh, where, where you have people armed. So again, back to the rule of law. How do we get communities comfortable? How do you say wait, where we have what seems like a pattern uh, of of egregious, uh, you know, of of egregious um, acts, um, and those fact patterns, I think, are not good for those communities impacted. Um, yet we're calling for uh, patience. I know that's a little bit unfair to you, Matt, because you don't wave a magic wand. Um, you know, but we're stuck a, a little bit, I think. Yeah, no, no. I, I look, you know, statistical analysis is is in and of itself tricky. I, I don't actually know that it's three times the rate. I mean, if you look at at killings of unarmed people last year, and that doesn't hold this this statistic won't hold for the preceding five years. Um, you had that's right. I, I believe twenty five white people out of four hundred and four who were unarmed. And yet you had 14 out of 258 black people. So actually the percentage of unarmed people killed last year by police was greater for whites. It's actually a little bit greater for Latinos. Yeah. But if you go back five years, the percentage of it's it stays remarkably steady for whites and Latinos. I suppose maybe this is good. Of course, we'll wait for the statistics this year. If you go back five That's years, right. so <laughs> the percentage for blacks is, is closer to 10%, which you know is significantly more than the five or 6% we see for Latinos. And then, you know, I'm not a statistician, but the question is, are these numbers, you know, large enough to really draw conclusions? And yeah, you know, how how finely are people going to look at these emotional issues? And I confess it's it's hard to do. I mean, you see somebody who could be you, you know, shot in the back 
And for many people, understandably, that's the end of the story. And, and, and you know, it's, it's hard to fault someone for that. But, you know, and, and that's why I, I can only try to say we need to educate ourselves better through the media. Our politicians need to be more responsible. Um, and then, because I think there are certainly things that we can be doing from a statutory basis, from a training basis, um, that that would arguably improve things, or I hope would improve things, and we can talk about that. Um, but but let me give you an illustration, and it's the Breonna Taylor case. Uh, again, I don't know if people know what a no-knock warrant is, but it's basically where the police get permission from a judge to execute an arrest warrant or a search warrant without announcing themselves, without knocking. They can just burst in like you might see on a TV show and, 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 and execute the warrant. Um, and, and because of what happened to Breonna Taylor, and I'll get to that in a second, there's now a, a federal statute uh, that Rand Paul has sponsored, and I believe Ron White, but I'm, but I'm not sure, that, that's basically saying, well, we're going to do away with no-knock warrants completely. And, and, and so given that, you know, would that make things better? Let me just walk people through what appears to be known about Breonna Taylor. Um, and that I think people are reacting because it's a terrible case. I mean, the end result is, is unspeakably tragic. But, but here, in the first instance, the police do what they're supposed to do. As the law stands now, you can get a no-knock warrant. It makes sense when you're dealing with situations with large amounts of drugs or firearms. I mean, you don't want to say, hello, I'm here. If you have your, you know, 10 kilograms of, of heroin or your three machine guns, here's your chance to throw them out the window or to load them up. I mean, that's, I think, the problem with the federal statute is it, it goes too far the other way. But, but here the police go to a judge, which they're supposed to do, and they get a no-knock warrant let me give some real life insights into no-knock warrants and judges. There are judges who are terrific and are incredibly tough on not just cops, but prosecutors. Uh, when I was a federal prosecutor, I remember staying up till 1.30 in the morning trying to draft a wiretapping warrant and the judge turned me down. I mean, she was great. She gave me about eight hours after work. I was at 1.30. She just said, forget it. On the other hand, there are state judges who frankly will sign any piece of paper police officers put in front of them. Um, and so the question is, you know, we need to train our police officers and even our judiciary to say, if you're gonna give this extreme kind of warrant, which I think we should still give because you just can't ask ATF officers and DEA, any FBI or police to walk into any situation having to announce themselves or to knock, but, 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 you know, to train them to say, well, wait a second, before you give this no-knock warrant, you know, we want more than probable cause. We want highly probable cause. I don't want to have information just from an anonymous informant who's in the past proven to be reliable, what we call the old Aguilar-Spinelli test, which were two Supreme Court cases. You know, I want to know as clearly as possible why there's a clear and present danger for you to announce yourself. Because what happens in Breonna Taylor is the cops not improperly get this warrant. Now, because bureaucracies bungle, because police departments can drop the ball terribly, in this case, when they go to execute the warrant, they don't know 
that the person they're looking for is already in custody. And he actually doesn't even live at that address anymore. Now, I assume in good faith, they mocked up, but they go, they and, and, and the person who survived inside the apartment, who was a fellow named Kenneth Walker, acknowledges that in fact, even though they had a no-knock warrant, they knocked. Now, the police also say they announced themselves. That is a fact very much in dispute. But what also appears to not be in dispute is that this fellow Kenneth Walker, who's in the apartment with Brianna Taylor, fires what he says is a warning shot. Whereupon the police, feeling, I guess, that they've been shot at, unleash a fusillade of fire. I think I've read 40 to 45 shots, eight of which strike Miss Taylor. Ironically, Mr. Walker drops to the floor and, and isn't hit. Mr. Walker was able to have the benefit of staying your ground laws, ironically, and, and criminal charges were dropped against him. Um, and the police officers are still under investigation. You know, so on the one hand, you can say, well, the police officers plainly overreacted. They didn't need to fire 40 shots, but they were shot at first. Um, and and Breonna Taylor is just the victim of a horrible crossfire tragedy. Uh, you know, did the cops overreact? Should they have dropped back? You know, and that's always seems to me a, a question in a lot of these cases. Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta, which we could talk about, is... You know, at what point do we tell the police officers, notwithstanding the old Garner test, you know what? You just have to stand down under certain circumstances. I think that's a little hard on Breonna Taylor because Kenneth Walker, although he felt they were home invaders and, and apparently in good faith that that's correct, um, he fired a weapon. Now, they don't know that he thinks they're home invaders. Um, it's it's becomes a little bit more difficult if we look at the Rayshard Brooks case. And if people remember that in Atlanta, you can kind of see on the tape, you know, Rayshard Brooks' drunk driving arrest seems to be going fine. All of a sudden, he becomes violent when the police try to handcuff him. He certainly scuffles with the police, gets hold of a taser, is running away. One cop follows him. That doesn't appear to be unreasonable. He shoots the taser at the officer's head, and then the officer shoots him in the back. You know, on the one hand, under the old Garner test, and I suspect even under Graham, that's going to be a pretty tough case to prove. On the other hand, if you're a juror or certainly an African-American or white or whoever, you know, well, couldn't you guys have just dropped back and said, here's a description yep. of a fellow we have. He's got a taser. All units approach. And, and Matt, he, that's the point I want to pick up on, because I think I said we would come back to the legitimacy of the standard today. Um, and I, I certainly don't want to be someone who's heard to say, let's not wait for the facts, because as a lawyer, we're trained to wait for the facts. And of course, I agree with you. The facts usually uh, uh, dictate the outcome and understanding them without all the emotionalism. If you're trying the case and you're on the jury, you have to wait for all the facts. I accept that. But the question is, and I think where you get so much resistance, resentment from members of the black community is that um, this desire to be objective, desire to wait for everything to come out, feels, I think to them, and, and I have a lot of sympathy for this, that it's not giving sufficient credence to the alternative courses that could have been taken, that could have avoided this outcome. 
And, you know, so I, I just want to, we have the, the Connor test, which we talked about at the beginning. We also have, by the way, the Kenosha Police Department Policy and Procedure Manual. Um, and it says that the excessive, well, deadly force in Wisconsin is the definition. The definition is that it's force supplied by the police uh, that by any means or instrumentality intended to or likely to cause death. An officer may use deadly force when he or she believes it's necessary to prevent death or great bodily harm to themselves or others. Therefore, it says the justification for deadly force is the immediate threat of death or great bodily harm. But the application of deadly force is that action which is likely to cause death. Now, that standard is a standard that basically says, you know, put in colloquial terms, think before you shoot, you know, and assess the risk before you shoot. You might get away with it under the Garner stand, standard but, right. or the or the Connor standard, but right. should you do it? Is that what we want from police officers in society? And should the Connor statute allow you to do it unless you could meet that kind of test? Yeah, well, so when we say, okay, people are killed with a knife, I understand. Of course, a knife is a deadly weapon. But when I look at the Jacob Blake facts... I see a person who's not facing the police officers with a knife, right? He might have been reaching for a knife. He might not have been reaching for a knife. Let's give the benefit of the doubt to the side of the facts that says there was a knife on the floor he was going to go to. He hasn't shown the knife. He hasn't turned around to the police officers. It'd be kind of ridiculous to think he's going to use it on his own children who he drove to there in wasn't threatening his own children with anything, right? So you'd have to believe as the police officer that he had an immediate ability to get a knife and put my life in danger that allows me to shoot seven times into his back. Now, under the objective test of Connor, I don't know how that will come out. But, But what should we be doing to apply the law in a way that takes these kinds of things into account? Can they de-escalate? Should they be required to de-escalate? Should they have to wait and see whether that immediacy of death, a taser versus a gun? I understand a taser can be a deadly weapon. Understood. But if somebody's not facing you with a taser, or even if he is, and you're a sufficient distance away, should you, as a police officer, shoot him in the back to prevent him from using it? Uh, maybe I'm not saying that there are no factual circumstances that would justify that, and I agree with you the facts are important, but we're looking at situations where to people who are not prepared to give the benefit of the doubt to the degree that that some people would give the benefit of the doubt, it feels unfair to them. So what what do we say about the standard that should be applied in, t- in the world in which we live today? Yeah. Well, you know, look, that's going to get you to the whole question of federalism. I actually think it is for each jurisdiction, by which I mean the states, to decide. And, and we've seen, I mean, California, Colorado, New York are all trying to figure this out. I mean, you know, right. if, if one extreme says, I don't care if you're fleeing and you have a gun and you have a knife or you have a knife or a taser or a baseball bat and you've just engaged in violent behavior, and I can't do anything except let you flee and call for backup. I, you know, I don't know. I, I would probably have a debate about that myself. I, I'm, I'm not so sure. 
again, depends on the facts, I hate to say it, that, that I would think, well, you just always have to let a person flee once they're running away. Um, so I think it depends. I mean, that, that's why you have the Walter Scott case, which is more egregious, where the person certainly, whatever struggle there was over a taser, he didn't have it and was well away from the police officer. There was just no need to fire. Jacob Blake, I think, is a little bit different because whether the police should have dropped back, I think that plays into certainly more into an issue of civil liability. The question is, do we want to escalate it to criminal liability for police officers where, you know, remember the, the officer's holding on to the back of Jacob Blake's T-shirt or, or that's what it appears. Well, he can just turn around with a knife and turn around and stab. That doesn't take very long either. And remember, seven shots get off in less than seven seconds. So, you know, seven Blake, seconds is a long time, Matt. Well, I said seven <laughs> shots, get, seven shots. No, I said seven shots gets off a lot more quickly than seven seconds, particularly if you, yeah, you, I understand. you have an automatic. I mean, you know, you can press a trigger on an automatic and shots fire. But I, I agree. I mean, I think these are the, the, the worst thing that I think in a lot of these recent cases, the police are going to have to confront is the notion that many people are going to say, and in circumstances, some circumstances correctly, why didn't you just fall back? You know, Rayshard right. Brooks, why didn't you just say we've got a drunk kind of violent guy uh, running into the woods or running through a parking lot with a taser, you know, all systems on alert. That, that, that had already been fired. That's right. And, and then there's even a question of if they knew yeah. there were any taser, you know, it's generally two shots yeah. to a taser and it's been reported that the officer yeah. should he have known or in the heat of month to be forget. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think the whole notion of falling back and when to fall back and then we can get into, you know, I, I kind of like what Colorado's trying to do i mean so you know so i was so going to talk to you about the statute yeah. so, so everybody just touch on one or two yeah so what, what everybody knows what we're talking about is california's tried to pass a statute that says well when it's necessary you can use deadly force that to me is just a minefield is going to invite everybody's prejudices white black young old it, it, it's just a mess um it seems to me what colorado's trying to do is, is coming a little bit close to Garner, but they're saying when there's an imminent threat of serious physical injury that, you know, then the police officer has a right to act. That strikes me as better than objectively reasonable, because again, I find that term murky. I mean, I think people understand if there's an imminent threat to you or an imminent threat, to, there's not a guy running into the woods or running away in the field or running down a deserted alley, because that gives the police time. Um, you know, and, and so that's, I, I kind of like the way the law is trending, but, you know, then you get, and this doesn't relate to deadly force, you know, in New York, which is kind of overshot, you know, we, we passed the statute in reaction to the chokeholds. Well, New York City literally doesn't allow a chokehold, even in self-defense, which conflicts with New York State. And there's a doctrine called preemption, and even our local DA is saying we're not going to be able to enforce that law. But then we also passed the law that looks like it's going to be amended that said, well, when somebody's on their diaphragm, you can't put any pressure on them because of the risk of death. And police officers are saying, well, well, hold on. If we can't use our weapons and we've got to get a guy handcuffed behind his back, you know, what are we supposed to, you know, what can we do? Um, and I think the legislature, the city council is going to amend that. But, you know, look, we're dealing with very difficult issues. Um, and in some respects, these issues are tough to define 
They're, de they're dealing with concepts that are tough to define. Uh, we're going to overshoot in some instances, uh, and then maybe we refine them. Like for instance, no, no, no knock statute. I don't, I don't think it's wise to outlaw no knock warrants. On the other hand, both police officers and judges need to be trained more sensibly to the dangers that they do present um, before they give somebody a no knock warrant. Uh, so that, that, that's the best I can tell you. Is there a statute that can work? Yeah, I, I, I think imminent threat works better than objectively reasonable. Um, I think should every prosecutor who's worth his salt is going to argue, you know, a police officer could have fallen back. And, and I think we're going to get into fact specific. Um, but, you know, a lot of it is just who we are, our life experiences and, and, you know, two reasonable, smart people or well-meaning, but not smart people are going to look at the same set of facts at times and, and disagree and, and nobody's wrong. Yeah, let me just, uh, I think it's uh, almost time to wrap it up with you, Mike, uh, Matt, you've been terrific, but um, I think there's a couple issues, maybe we'll come back and talk about them again with you, but one I wanted to talk about now, and you mentioned the, you know, very, very sad situation in Rochester. What about when you're dealing with, when police are dealing with mentally ill people? And let me just preface by saying, mm -hmm. I recognize the difficulty of that because a mentally ill person can be extremely difficult and violent um, when they're having an episode. And so I don't mean to suggest that doesn't present very difficult questions for the police. And there can be confusion as to what's a drug episode and what's a, a mental illness episode. But let's make it easy and talk about a situation where it's clearly someone who's mentally ill. Um, and, and um, you know, does, how does that play into the police reaction, uh, whether the police are really the right people to be dealing with the situation, you know, in the moment? If someone's not in imminent danger, I understand if someone is in imminent danger, it's a police issue. But if no one's in imminent danger, but someone is acting out, and and potentially violent or even armed, but not not necessarily threatening anyone at the moment. Um, are there other ways to de-escalate the situation? Is there a combination of police and other types of services that might prevent some of these tragedies from happening? You know, look, I think that's a matter of you know the police, and this is so tough. They just somehow we have to improve their training if we can. I mean, a mentally ill person, sad as it is, as you pointed out, can be incredibly violent. And, you know, we are, you know, we can't have a 911 caller, you know, call up and say, send a social worker, you know, send a psychiatrist. It, it, it is going to be the police. I mean, one answer is to kind of have rapid response social worker teams, you know, perhaps go to scenes with the police when the caller, because remember, a lot of times police are going to scenes, they don't know if they're dealing with a mentally ill person or not. I mean, sometimes they do, but, but, you know, they don't know and, and they don't necessarily know who's schizophrenic or who's under the, the, the influence of PCP or, or, or whatever. So, so the answer is, I think sometimes the answer is yes. And I'd like to see social workers integrated more into precinct work, but don't kid yourself. I mean, mentally ill people can be very violent. People calling aren't taking the time to do their own analysis, although actually in the Daniel Prude case, the caller did say 
you know, it's my brother and, 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 and he's mentally ill. But Daniel Crude is an extreme situation. And I think some of the cops involved there are going to face significant legal problems uh, and should. Um, but, but so the answer to that is yes. You know, if we can train police better to recognize it, and, and, and you, you hit it right. I mean, that's why I like the imminent threat standard. Okay, you know somebody is mentally ill. You know they're, you know, in an apartment with a knife. But if there's nobody left in the apartment, cordon off the apartment and try other things first. Um, and, and the police ought to be trained to, to call other resources there first. On the other hand, if there's somebody in the apartment, a child, a spouse, a partner, you know, you, you place the police in a difficult situation and what they have to address yep. is the behavior. I mean, again, the police, police behavior. That's what we're talking about. L let me also just address one more thing because I know some people, we do it in New York, and, and I don't think it's a systematic answer. There are jurisdictions now that, that want to kind of remove police prosecutions, certainly police homicides, from district attorney's offices. Um, I, I don't think that's a particularly good idea. I don't think it's a particularly bad idea. There are some DAs, and I'll, I'll reveal a certain amount of bias here. I, my time in the Manhattan DA's office was terrific. And I happen to think the, the current DA um, is, is a very well-meaning, well-intentioned person of good faith who has an army of terrifically experienced prosecutors. Our last three attorney generals, you know, Spitzer, Cuomo, and now Letitia James, I, I, I'm not going to say anything good or bad about any of them, except that they all have political ambitions, which the current district yeah. attorney doesn't have. And, and so if you're going to, create special prosecutors or remove prosecutions of police from district attorney's offices who can have an inherent conflict. I'm not saying DAs don't have political ambitions. It's just the particular DAs, I think in Brooklyn and Manhattan here don't. And I happen to think our state attorney general does. You know, you gotta be very careful because a prosecutor with political ambitions is just one of those minefields that everybody has to watch out for. So I, well, let me let me suggest something related. I, I think I take your point about an, a, a prosecution uh, or, or I understand why too too much of anything or too automatic a response is usually not the answer. But I do wonder whether there should automatically be an independent review, a timely independent review, which may drag on because the facts need to emerge, but it ought to be instituted immediately that is consists of some citizens, um, members of the different communities, et cetera, that that are that are involved, you know, implicated by it, or or going to have uh, have to live with the ramifications of it. Um, that allows uh, an assessment to be made as to what the next step ought to be, and I think that would add some legitimate. And I know that happens in some places, but but I was thinking of what was egregious, what was particularly egregious about the situation in Buffalo. And the passage of time before it became known that this even occurred prevented there from being an objective, at least initial review that might take the sting because it's so often it's the optics of a situation that fuel the emotionalism. And the and when you're dealing with a situation that is as uh, uh, highly charged for good reason, as these situations are on both sides, um, it, it 
I think it anything that tends to suggest the fixes in against someone is going to rile those passions up. And so we have to be doing whatever is necessary as a society to try to take that sting out of it as early in the process as we can. Yeah, you know, what, just, what's your view on that? The problem with that is, of course, in Rochester and, and we've been in Chicago, body cameras are just taking too long to get out. And, and while we can't tell the police, you know, in, in six hours, we want all this and that released. The other problem you have, John, is, you know, prosecutors in good faith. And, and I, I like to think most prosecutors are acting in good faith. And I think in New York City, they do, frankly. Um, you know, they need time to investigate a criminal case. And if you start having kind of a, a civilian complaint review board or a neutral commission or a special prosecutor, leaving aside the quality of the people, because that's always going to override whatever systematic structure you set up, you're just going to interfere with the criminal investigation. And you're going to, you're going to delay the criminal investigation even longer. And so you kind of, at least in my view, have to give the criminal investigators a kind of a pretty wide berth and first priority. Now that didn't happen in Rochester. And, and uh, like I said, I think there's a, a whole much longer story that we're going to have to figure out as to what happened in Rochester. Um, but, but that's the problem when you run, just like when the SEC jumps in on a federal criminal investigation, I, I mean, you know, the SEC will stand aside. You just, you just have to, if, if you want the criminal justice system to work, you have to give it a wide berth. You have to give it first priority. And that's frustrating to people because forensics need to be gathered. Cameras need to be gathered. Shell casings need to be gathered. Autopsies need to be done. In this day and age, you know, there is a, an army of lawyers who pounce on these cases and they hire independent forensic examiners. <laughs> and make no mistake, it's plus for the system that we allow independent autopsies. Remember, 30, 40 years ago, someone would have said, you have your own forensic examiner, well, bully for you. You know, and, and, and that's a good thing. I mean, you know, I think, you know, part of it is, you know, it's just, it really is, you know, a, a glass half full, a glass half empty. It's rhetoric, it's reporting, and it's passion. And, and, and you know, we're going to have to try to stumble along. And try no, no, to find no. Out Look, I, I, so I think I it's a good discussion. We appreciate uh, you being here to kind of guide us, uh, guide us, guide us through. Um, not only the law, but some of uh, the angles where we can go. And I think, as John has said, um, you know, it'd be, be be great once we digest this, maybe to to come back because we've got a, um, in my mind, we've got a little bit of a chicken and the egg. And I think, as as John has said, and as you've well articulated, um, the law is fact driven, and we have to be able to gather that. Uh, I think at the same time, um, we have to be able to get some sort of statistical analysis that people can believe in um, and say, if there is a pattern which says that blacks are being shot more um, and we have a, a, a pattern in the consciousness, we've got to come out and address that because otherwise it's it's going to be hard for people to uh, wait and hard for people to um, buy into the rule of law, which we need for our system to effectively uh, govern. But, I, you know, uh, Matt, I, I think a uh, wonderful discussion. Thank you for taking the time. I know our audience is, uh, is, is really going to enjoy it. Brian and I thank you for listening to The Law in Black and White. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find us at legal-innovators.com for even more insights. 
You can also subscribe to our podcast for bi-monthly conversations and follow Legal Innovators on social media to see what we're up to. We look forward to talking to you next time and be safe.